Well, today marks the start of a series of five sermons that draw upon five practices of fruitful congregations. Fruitful rather than successful, however we might evaluate the word success. And they're drawn from the writings of an American Methodist bishop, a bishop in Missouri, Robert Snazy. And this morning what we're doing is looking at the first of those five practices. It's not the first in the book, but we're doing them in this particular order, risk-taking, mission, and service. A fruitful Christian congregation is known and experienced as one that practices risk-taking, mission, and service. Now, I want you to note, before we really start on this passage, that mission and service are God's idea before they become our idea. Mission and service are not something we do because God has told us to do alone. We do it because we see in God the supreme missionary and servant. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity of God we remember today, is, if you like, a missionary servant God. God creates in the beginning of the world everything, beautiful and good, and from the moment that humankind brings sin into the world, in the Garden of Eden story, God is on a mission to redeem and restore all things, restore them to God's self. That's what the big story of the whole of the Old Testament is about. God enabling his people to be more completely his people by hearing again and again through the ministry of prophets, through the giving of a law written on hearts, you are to be a people who bring glory to me, who are like I am, a missionary, serving, sacrificial God. And then in the fullness of time, to use a phrase we often use in Holy Communion, God in Jesus Christ comes to the earth. And in his life and his ministry, we see God's missionary servant heart in such crystal clarity. Jesus heals and he serves. He's found with people on the margins of society and says astonishing things to them about the forgiveness of sins and God's redeeming love. And of course, he lays down his life on a cross for the sins of the world. Sacrifice, servanthood. And then as we celebrated just last week, the Holy Spirit of God falls down upon those disciples gathered in Jerusalem and the day of Pentecost marks the beginning of that Christian movement. Pentecost is sometimes referred to as the birthday of the church. Uh, I don't see it like that really, it's, it's too institutional for me. I think Pentecost is more accurately the beginning of the mission of the church the believers and followers of Jesus Christ, filled with the power of God, being about the things of God, and we look very carefully at what those being about things are. And they include being missionary and being servants. 
straight away in the Acts of the Apostles, the small Christian group engages in a life of mission and servanthood and we read enjoys the goodwill of all the people. My late great New Testament professor said when he was introducing a bunch of young people studying at Manchester University in 1843 when I was there, he got as far as this, he said, gentlemen, the acts of the apostles, it is as if God drops a pebble into the pool of human history and you watch the ripples. From Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. The disciples might have been forgiven for thinking as the Holy Spirit falls upon them as Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would as they wait there in Jerusalem. This is what we do now. We stay in Jerusalem. We go to the temple. We offer God worship. We share meals together. We enjoy the goodwill of all the people. We stay here giving thanks to God forever. After all, one of the traditions of Pentecost as a Jewish festival was that as you gathered there in Jerusalem, you expected that one day you would see as the fullness of God's time unfolded that there would come those from the north and the south and the east and the west coming to this omega point of Zion, city of our God, city on a hill. So that when the Holy Spirit falls upon those disciples on that first day of Pentecost, you could almost be excused for them thinking, this is it, this is the fulfillment, this is where we stay. And God, full of surprises, turns around and says, okay, stay here for a little while. And then one day they wake up and says, and now we go. The picture of God in the Acts of the Apostles isn't of some distant divine parent sitting in a house in heaven, dishing out instructions to believers. You are to be missionaries. You are to be servants. It's more a picture of God as parent living within the family home who says, come on, breakfast, get your coats on, Put your scarves on, follow me, we're going out. And it was that same professor who said to his small class in 1843, the Acts of the Apostles is the only book in the Bible where human beings from first chapter to last chapter are running to catch up with what God is doing. Today's Aldersgate Sunday, when we remember our origins as Methodist Christians begun in God through the ministries of John and Charles Wesley, we've sung both their conversion hymns. That's why it's four minutes past 12. Originally, I think it was Charles's conversion hymn had 17 verses, but we removed some of those for you and thankfully so did Paul who was here this morning and other people who worked on our new hymn book. But one of John Wesley's great themes was his talk about the prevenience of the Holy Spirit. Now, we won't go into the, what the word uh, means in terms of its origins. Uh, just suffice to say that by it, Wesley meant that God goes before, leads the way, exactly what I've just been talking about. 
goes before God's people into the world that Christ died to save. So although John Wesley had more than most to say about the blessings, about the comfort, about the courage, about the presence, about the gifts, about the fruits of the Holy Spirit of God, he always regarded the Holy Spirit as essentially the spirit of mission who enabled Christian service. The Holy Spirit is often nowadays, and I use this word properly, reduced to be understood as the blesser upper of the church. And so right. But Wesley reminded us of the equally thoroughly true scriptural picture that the Holy Spirit of God is on a mission in the whole world and invites Christian disciples to accompany him, her, it. When I worked at Cliff College, where incidentally Tony and Francis Miles went as an engaged couple also in 1843. Sorry Francis. All the students went on mission several times during the year and they were put in groups of about eight and ten to go on mission and before going there was always sort of preparation of various kinds and then prayer meetings in the chapel. And now I remember saying to many a group setting off on mission, what are you going to do? And really what I was asking was, do they know where they're going? And sometimes a student would say something like this, we're going to go take God's love to X or Y, Rotherham or Rotherhithe or wherever else it might be. And then when they return from mission, either after the end of a weekend or a week or sometimes by Easter, three weeks, wasn't it? Three weeks Easter missions, going back in time. They'd then meet again back in the chapel where we'd have another debrief and a a prayer meeting of celebration. And I'd say to them, now you told me that you were going to go take God to the people of Rochdale. What did you, how did it go? What did you find out? And they said, God was already there. We just saw what God was doing and decided we'd join in. Seeing what God is doing and deciding to join in is about as good a definition of mission and service as you'll get. But that very recognition is what Wesley meant when he talked about the prevenient work of the Holy Spirit. God is abroad in the world, on mission, the servant God, and inviting God's people to be where he is, to share the life of risk-serving mission and service with God throughout the world. So mission and service is not something we do for God. It's more something we do with God. And just as we can be sure that God is with us when we worship and when we praise God's name here now, we can be equally sure that God is with us when we're engaging in mission and service, however that takes its shape. Go into all the world, remember Jesus is said at the end of Matthew's gospel, and I am with you always. Now let's turn to this passage just for a few brief minutes. Jesus' life and ministry gives many examples of mission and service, but this reading that Kath read for us from Matthew provides a particularly stark parable. It's one of those (gasps) parables. 
And I want you to notice one or two things about it. First, and put very simply, Jesus says that those who stay the right side of God, to use a phrase my mother used of me when I was young, do you want to get the wrong side of me? You stay the right side of me. If you want to be the right side of God and therefore please God and do what God wants, you treat the least as if they were Christ himself. Want to know how to make God smile? Live in a way that fulfills this parable. Mother Teresa was brilliant at this. She told her little sisters of charity this. Hungry for love, he looks at you. Thirsty for kindness, he begs of you. Naked for loyalty, he hopes in you. Homeless for shelter in your heart, he asks of you. Will you be that one to him? And whether they love in response or not, or respect in response or not, will we go on being that one for others irrespective? Now we have to be clear about something very subtle here. Jesus is not saying to us, Because you say you love me and you are my disciples, go and do something nice to people even though you can't stand their guts. Can you imagine saying to a person in prison, I don't really want to be here, I'm just doing it because Jesus says I've got to. I mean, it's not exactly the most pastoral or caring approach, is it? No, what Jesus is saying is this. Engage in risk-taking mission and service to the least of the least and know it is as if it were me. And so in every act of kindness and compassion of mission and service, we touch Christ himself. I was naked, I was thirsty, just as you did this to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. So love of God and love of neighbor belong together and you demonstrate one through the other. Secondly, note this, for many people the most powerful expression that God loves them and cares for them doesn't come through sermons like this or hymns singing like we've sung or evangelical campaigns or even assurances of prayer. It's the acts of kindness, of mission and service outlined here in Matthew done in and through the love of God. A compassionate heart, one loved sinner to another that transforms lives. I remember in my second ministerial appointment, we've got into the 1920s by now, Eileen, whose young child was quite ill, repeatedly have to go into hospital, was outside the church but was met at the school gates by two people who belonged to church, invited along Suddenly the children became friends. Suddenly they started taking Eileen's other children in so she could go visit her daughter when her daughter was out of hospital and she made a full recovery, but it was a long haul, including her. And then we had a church weekend 
This was in West Yorkshire. And during that weekend, we did what we sometimes do here. We invited people and said, if you want to respond to God's love, simply come during the singing of this last hymn and kneel here at the front of the church and somebody will pray with you. And the two women who had befriended Eileen and her family now for several months made that response and Eileen was at the church that day. And during the singing of the last verse of the hymn, she came and knelt next to them. It's very moving. Afterwards, when we prayed, because she'd never really shown any deep interest in the spiritual nature of the church, but she developed deep friendships with these other two women in the church. Her, when they asked her why she'd come forward, they were delighted she had. This was her line. It's a cracker and I've never forgotten it. Well, we've done everything else together these last few months. I wasn't going to let you meet God on your own. One reason why risk-taking mission and service is such a fruitful practice for a congregation is that it makes new disciples of Christ. When a church doesn't engage in risk-taking mission and service, its own spirituality wanes because you're cutting yourself off from a root of fruitfulness and nutrition and input that starves you. All sorts of congregations fall into the trap of becoming more and more inward when God wants us actually and demonstrates at Pentecost. He wants us more and more outward. The third thing I note about this parable, this devastating parable of Jesus, is how little Jesus tells you about the people themselves other than their condition. He doesn't, for example, tell us their ethnicity or their color. He doesn't tell us their gender or their age. He doesn't tell us whether or how they came to be sick or poor or imprisoned. He doesn't make any comment about whether it was self-inflicted or totally bad luck doesn't even tell us whether these people are believers in God or not. He just tells us that they're people and they're in need. You see, Christ's own compassion and mercy and grace extends to the whole world. That's why he died for all of it. Service is the offering of oneself to improve the lives of someone else. And scripture is just laden with that kind of godly service. The final thing before I move to a close is to note, and the fourth thing about this parable, is that it's pretty eternal in its consequences. I've been around enough months now to know that, you know, I'm not a sort of hellfire and damnation preacher. I'd much prefer to talk about the love of God. I'd much prefer to talk about how people get to heaven than what happens if they don't. I remember going to Enniskillen many, many years ago as a young Methodist. And it was the one and only time I watched the great Ian Paisley preach in a tent. I remember two things about it. One was he was an even more long-winded preacher than I am. 
And the second was that army helicopters were going around as he preached. This was in the 1970s. He could talk about hellfire and damnation, but even then, not in a wholly negative way. He just said to you, when he was preaching about this parable, if God tells you how to be a sheep, be a sheep. Because God tells you what happens if you're a goat. This parable has eternal consequences. So we ought to take it seriously. Mission and service, you see, changes us. It changes the life of others and it changes the life of a congregation for the better. Our congregation here engages in mission and service. Having this wonderful site and these premises, these resources here right in the centre of London, we particularly engage in mission and service as hospitality. Use this space. But we'll come to hospitality because it's another of the five fruitful practices, and I'll leave that for another day. Phew, you say. We house and engage, though, in a number of good causes and charitable activities. We heard earlier on about the new, newly adopted Welcome Box scheme. But we've got St. Vincent's Family Project. We're participating in the Passage and Food Banks. All sorts of groups uh, are for representing various charities and needs use and come in and benefit from this place. I say this not to make us complacent or proud, but to point out that we do engage in mission and in service in a number of different ways, like thousands of other Christian congregations. I happen to know Robert Snazy, who wrote the book on which we're basing our five sermons on fruitful congregations. And one day when I was with him, it was in Atlanta, I said to him, why did you put risk-taking mission and service? Why not just mission and service? Because all congregations engage in things that might be described as mission and service, he said. I wanted to point out what the next level is. He went on, risk-taking means a congregation living with a greater level of uncertainty, with a higher level of discomfort about knowing just what it is it should do. A reduction of easy decisions, wrestling with harder ones, a deeper level of sacrifice in the congregational life, a greater distance from comfort zones and cozy circles of friends. Because, he went on, risk-taking mission and service best mirrors Jesus' own ministry. It involves stretching a congregation, causing them to do something for the good of others that they'd have never considered doing if it was not for their relationship with Christ and their desire to serve him. He went on, it's doing it knowing there's no guarantee of success. Those we help bear addictions sometimes return to them. Those we help off the streets may well return to them. But like the sower, sowing in places where the seed does not sprout or it's eaten by birds or burnt up by the sun, you keep on sowing. I remember him saying to me, Martin, what do you think the opposite of risk-taking is? I said, well, safe, predictable, convenient, comfortable. 
Who wants that, he said to me. Does that sound particularly like the ministry of Jesus to you? Risk-taking congregations are dissatisfied with a world of child abuse, of the suffering of innocence, of the oppression of the poor, cycles of addiction, constant violence, systemic injustice throughout the world and round the corner. So in their own way, sometimes very small and apparently insignificant ways, those congregations seek to transform the world. And when they do that, God's spirit rejoices and helps us. Now finally, because I've gone on too long, I want you to note this. That risk-taking mission and service is the practice of a fruitful congregation. A fruitful congregation. I'm sure that as disciples of Jesus, each of us individually is called to engage in certain kinds of mission and service among those we live with, those we work with, and so on. But at a congregational level, the people of Methodist Central Hall Westminster, for example, not every individual has this ministry, whether the gifts or the temperament or the stamina to be about these things. So how do we work that one? But every congregation will have this ministry of risk-taking and service in some of its members. Some among us, even this morning listening to this sermon, are called to ministries of risk-taking mission and service and they exercise those in our name because they've heard and responded. And God is calling others among us this morning to such ministries and they are just beginning to realize it. And they're just in the process of wondering whether or not they're able to respond to that call or not. And both groups of people need encouragement, support and prayer from all the rest of us in the congregation because whoever does it, does it for us all. You see, the essence of this, that critical act of self-discovery for a congregation in 2016 that leads to the truth about everything I'm trying to waffle on about this morning is this. We as a congregation of Christ's people in this place are not an end in ourselves. Our purpose for being here is not met by living out our lives on our own. We as a congregation of Christ's people are the resources God chooses to use to transform the world through the power of the Spirit. And that includes us. Can you believe that? Us today, here, now. And perhaps when God looks down from a not too distant heaven and looks at our church meeting agendas, he looks for the signs of radical risk-taking mission and service, whether or not, as I want to tell you, 
as a one church circuit we exist by the right standing order and when we realize that we are called to risk-taking mission and service and as a congregation increasingly take that seriously and live it out and act then God smiles and the thing that best thrills Christian hearts is when you know that God smiles on you. Amen.